Hello everyone and welcome. Uh, the Goad Foundation proudly presents The Goad Connection, a Goad Humanism Honor Society production. I am your host, Helen. And before we get into why we're here and hopefully why you press play, I um, want to get into a little bit of moment to hear from Louisa, who is going to give us some information about GHHS. The Gold Humanism Honor Society, which we call GHHS for short, is made up of medical students who were selected by their peers for their deep humanism and compassion. GHHS chapters are in medical schools around the world, and GHHS members continue as leaders of humanism long after medical school as they become physicians and healthcare leaders. Each year, GHHS launches a national initiative focused on one topic, which is highlighted throughout the year. The 2020 GHHS National Initiative is Humanism and Healing, Structural Racism and Its Impact on Medicine. We hope GHHS will use their members, will use their leadership roles to start or extend conversations about racism and its impact on healthcare in their local communities and beyond. To create space for grieving, processing and bearing witness around the topic or to take action in one of many powerful ways that humanism can begin to heal. The first episode of the Gold Connection podcast is intended to begin the conversation and inspire GHHS chapters and other members to take part in the 2020 National Initiative. Thanks for that uh, brief history so that way we can know as far as uh, audience and hopefully an extension beyond because of Gold's connection and impact, uh, not only within medicine, but also in the very communities where our members are. Now, as we hope to do or will do in each episode, we want to use this platform to discuss timely topics. Uh, the topic for our first episode is Humanism and Healing, Structural Racism, and Its Impact on Medicine. Now, since this is a vast topic, uh, we want to make sure that we have perspectives from different people and also, you know, um, I guess different membership engagement types here with Gold. Um, so I guess before I get into who we have with us, just for a little bit of an explanation of how we're going to do this, it's going to be a little bit of a panel discussion. Um, but again, we want to make sure that we have different voices so that way um, it's not just me talking to you about these things. So our guest today, and they're going to give a little bit more information, don't worry. Uh, so our guest, Emmy, Candace, and Louisa, who you just heard from, um, so let's start with Louisa. Can you give us a little bit more information about yourself and your connection to GHHS? Sure. So my name is Louisa. I'm the director of GHHS and the director of program initiatives here at the Arnold P. Gold Foundation. And um, I'm really thrilled to, to be using this platform of a podcast, which I'm excited to see the direction it goes and to record multiple episodes. But um, this is a great place to start. Um, and, and I think that I bring the perspective of the Gold Foundation, which, uh, you know, our mission is so grounded in caring for the entire person. And, and humanism is just sort of penetrates every single 
uh, every single program, every single action, and it feels impossible to be facing this tremendous, um, you know, fight of racism in our nation and not talk about the humanity of all. And so I, um, I hope to bring that perspective um, and just really, you know, as for, from GHHS perspective, we, our students and our members are really leaders and we, we expect them to be leaders in this, in this fight and we're confident that they will be. Um, and so, so I'm really proud, proud to be, uh, to be this, this perspective in this role. Okay. I guess Candace or Amy. My name is Candace. I am a fourth year medical student at Howard University College of Medicine, which is a historically black college, or HBCU, as you'll hear me refer to it. Um, and I am also a freshly minted trainee member of the Advisory Council for the Gold Humanism Honor Society. And as far as the perspective I bring, um, as not only being uh, a Mexican-American medical student, who attended a predominantly black medical school, but also as a female student of color at a predominantly white male U.S. service academy earlier in my life, um, and first in my family to do either of those things at that. So um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you, Helen and Louisa, and all of the other members of the advisory council uh, that helped make this initiative not just possible, but also a priority, and for giving us the chance to really open the door on some of these discussions moving forward. Okay, great. And uh, Amy, yes. Yes. Um, hi, my name is Annie Luefe, but everybody calls me Annie. Um, my perspective is a woman of color um, and an immigrant. I've been living in America since, wow, since I was four years old and I'm 27 now. And I think that has really shaped my view. I'm also, just at this, I am in fourth year medical school at the University of North Carolina, um, applying into psychiatry. And like Candace, I am a newly minted uh, trainee member. And I'm really excited, like Candace, to share my views on this. Okay, well, great, great. And I guess a little bit about me, your host um, for today's episode. My name is uh, Helen Ransom. I'm an advisor for the local chapter here at Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University. I'm also a member of the advisory council. Um, as far as the perspective that I am working with and uh, bringing to this conversation is that of um, black women having grown up in um, the South, but also lived in various uh, places uh, in the U.S., and also just um, really, I guess, just tying it to uh, gold and its um, ability as far as the main mission of humanism, just being a moral agent in today's society, you have to, um, at least I, I feel that you can't go a day without thinking about some of these topics as we are witnessing and seeing these things on the news. Uh, so just... Um, I think outside of my connection to gold, but also just watching and viewing all of this, I think I would still have something to say. So this gives me an opportunity to say it. Um, what we hope uh, t 
to do uh, with today's conversation is um, bring it uh, to our to gold and also to also extend beyond just the membership, but also again to the very patients and communities that our students, physicians, and members uh, interact with every day. So as we kind of set this up, racism is um, <laughs> not an easy topic. There's no way that we can um, address all of the different aspects of it or, meet, or as far as through discussion, resolution, or um, just perspective. But with where we are as a society, um, each of you, you've mentioned as far as your connection to gold, uh, your perspectives, and if we're going to bring it back to GHHS, um, what is or what should be uh, our role in this discussion? Uh, what can we add to it that's different from what's currently being, um, I guess, presented or what's currently happening at our various institutions. Yeah, I think that the role of um, GHHS, first of all, I, I know that so much is already happening and I want to, I want the initiative, the, this initiative to be an opportunity to share what's already taking place at, the, at multiple institutions. But I also want to, you know, inspire our GHHS members um, to, to take the lead. And we said, like we're saying, this is a difficult conversation to start. Um, we might not know where to start. We recognize that there are a tremendous amount of hurdles, but we also know that we have this incredible platform and our members, the members of GHHS are inducted uh, for their intense compassion. And, uh, and so I really hope that this is a catalyst to for, for these students to begin to kind of rally their peers and say, let's take this on and let's have a conversation or, um, you know, let's, let's bring humanism into this conversation as a, as a healing, with a healing um, motive. Um, and so, so I think that that's the role of our student members. And I think also to inspire their peers that are not necessarily, um, you know, actively engaged in these conversations just to sort of break the ice if the conversations aren't happening already um, to give it give it a good jumping off point. Okay, okay. Um, anybody want to add to that? Yeah, so um, Cand Candace here. So for me, there's uh, three basic themes that I'd like to talk about um, in order to answer this question regarding uh, the role of humanism as it relates to the fight against racism. And there are things that we in the medical field agree upon and place great emphasis on already. Uh, those are patient care, patient advocacy, and empathy. So to start with uh, patient care, um, a huge part of quality patient care is ensuring that there's similar physician representation. Um, and that can be a variety of things, such as similar culture, similar language, appearance, uh, maybe even similar values. Or it could just even be common experiences, maybe adversities early in life, experiences of racism, experiences mm -hmm. of even tokenism. 
Um, I think that by making more of an effort to ensure that our physician workforce represents those patients uh, that are experiencing the greatest healthcare burdens, um, what we often refer to as medically underrepresented communities, we can really take another step um, in the direction of helping to narrow this racial gap of health disparities uh, that exists. Because um, though we can't point to one specific cause of them, we do know some things that have been revealed by various studies already about why there are these disparities, um, such as the fact that Black men seen by Black doctors were found to agree to more and even more invasive preventative services than those seen by non-Black physicians. Uh, we know that um, certain biases and historically non-factual beliefs still persist today, regardless even of someone's explicit racial attitudes, uh, this was found. So these are things like Blacks being better athletes or even experiencing lower levels of pain than white patients. Um, we also know that factors such as common language or ethnicity um, can be huge influencers of a medical trainee's choice to eventually then take their work back to some of these underserved communities if they originated from them. So mm -hmm. knowing all of these things and many others um, not mentioned here, um, basically some of the things I'll be talking about alongside um, the topic of racism is how we boost minority physician recruitment um, to ensure mm. their future success as well. Because alongside caring about how racism impacts our patients, um, mm -hmm. it's also woven into the same issues that are affecting them right now. So um, that kind of leads into the patient advocacy piece. Mm -hmm. um, so when that's to say, when, when physicians feel more culturally, conceptually, even aesthetically connected to their patients, they're better, typically better equipped to really listen to them, to understand their needs, um, to be able to take that a step further to better advocate for like specific systems, programs, policies um, oh. that will benefit these patients and also like all patients because oh. everyone relies on the same healthcare system. So oh. it becomes very strained when access remains inequitable. So um, a simple, just but very like profound example um, can be seen at Howard University Hospital, um, which has been long treating uh, a large portion of some of DC's most underserved communities in wards yes. seven and eight and um, other surrounding areas, and even has historical roots uh, grounded in the days of slave trades back in the 1860s, uh, they were the premier hospital to treat former slaves that later became freedmen and women. But um, in addition to all of that, today they also take DC patients from wards as far away as like Ward 2, uh, which is actually physically closer to MedStar Georgetown Hospital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and so when you talk to these patients, um, the majority of which are patients of color, you come to find that they actually prefer to receive their care at Howard, um, and they'll make the long trip to do so, because if they feel like a sense of community there and they feel like their doctors see them differently, mm -hmm. um, they build better relationships there. So to tie into current day events, when the pandemic hit DC, Howard really strived to be a force for change. And um, they used significant grant money to provide free COVID-19 testing to some of DC's most vulnerable populations. 
And to me, this is a great example of how a hospital was able to leverage a long history of retaining patients Mm -hmm. um, that felt more comfortable with predominantly black physicians to then recruit those same patients to get them the testing they needed to help combat what has now become disproportionate impact on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the uh, third thing is that all of these factors play directly into this concept of empathy um, or more specifically humility in the practice of medicine. So um, sometimes it's better to just listen to others' experiences without judgment, without defensiveness, Mm -hmm. without cloud of preconceptions. Um, And then the mastery of this art then helps develop a stronger culture of awareness, uh, particularly when it comes to very delicate issues surrounding race and power structures in America and how they both play into what we now know as the social determinants of health. So um, this one can be hard for us because in in case you haven't noticed, we live in a culture of opinions. (laughs) We have, (laughs) yes, we have platforms to share them at all times about so many things. And I'm actually using one now. Um, And they often become loud and overwhelming and they begin to cloud even our own best judgment at times. Um, So, and there's a a really good, great book about that, by the way, called The Culture of Personality. It's, um, or it's it's called Quiet, but she talks about the culture of personality in it, Susan Cain. Um, Highly recommend it. So um, in essence, People express through words, through actions, through body language, um, all the things that they're experiencing. And that goes for both patients and our colleagues. So um, helping our peers and subordinates feel a high degree of morale benefits everybody at work Mm -hmm. and it benefits our patients. And so let's just make sure we're having these discussions as well to address self-care and our own work environments as well. And that'll be really be a unifying goal moving forward. Um, Yes. Thank you so much, Candace. I really appreciate everything you had to say. Um, I think one of the first questions that you'd asked us, Helen, was about um, the role of um, GHS and what they can do in this, um, this climate and addressing racism. And I really, really appreciated something Louisa said about platform and the power of the platform. Um, we know that I feel like this honor society is very powerful and has an impact on the way um, people view med- medical students, particularly in residency, as now that we're an ERAF identifier. And I think it's really hard to find an organization or a group of people who are well-respected within medicine that are willing to really have those difficult conversations. And so I'm thankful for this platform in general. I'm thankful for, um, I don't know, I'm just thankful for the desire to do that, particularly because it's really hard to find, again, somebody who can influence like medical education. And um, one of the things that I really wanted to maybe go back with, Candice, is this what you were talking about, the role of humanism and racism. And I loved your three-prong approach and it was really powerful. And if we're gonna shift our conversation towards that, I feel like humanism is so important. Um, And in reality, when I think about from the moment we're born, particularly in America to now, we tend to dehumanize people, particularly people of color. Um, Well, I shouldn't say people of color. I think that 
when you are born, you are placed in a society and you are taught to see people as a certain way. And in reality, you never really get to interact with those people. Um, where your color, your race, your your ethnicity, your, your social structure, it pretty much impacts where you go to school, where you go to preschool. And then even if you're exceptional or you are the odd one out, when you go to that environment that's not where you're supposed to be, quote unquote, you are treated differently if you are the odd one out. And it kind of perpetuates this inability to see others or the other as somebody you know and love. Um, I think Brian Stevenson does it, talks about this really well, about the power of proximity. And he does an awesome, awesome like TED-like talk to the AAMC. So everybody should check that out. I'm pretty sure it's free to watch. And he encourages us as healthcare providers and people to be proximate to the people we serve. And that is basically how to undehumanize all the things that we have learned. Um, and I think that was powerful for me. It's powerful for me to see my patients. And even as a woman of color, I, I can see how medical school has almost in a way taught me to forget that there's a person behind this race or this fact. And you look at it in this debate with um, estimating GFR. And there's this whole debate about why do we use race for that? And you can ask your doctor, you can ask your clinician, you can ask your professor, and there's really no evidence for that and there's no evaluation for that. But the truth is, is because there's a social economic factor when you um, evaluate GFR and it's dehumanized to the race. And I can only think about how many of my classmates or you know colleagues in the wider sense of medicine don't see black people, don't know black people, don't interact with black people, and they have sort of internalized bad kidneys <laughs> for this entire group of people. Um, and so I, I think that humanism is so important and we need to actively undehumanize the way we approach people. All of you have said some really great things that could uh, keep us uh, talking about this issue um, just uh, going on, but um, as you were talking, I was like, wow, um, the gold really has some great representation here with the students <laughs> and the ideas and things that you are um, not only thinking about, but actively applying to your um, your day-to-day -day and how, what you see or hope to be as a physician. Um, as an advisor, I often, you know, kind of look at students and we have this discussion about professionalism and some of the aspects and things that you uh, mentioned as far as this whole, um, uh, I guess, inability to see people like you see them, but you don't see them. Um, and with professionalism, I, I think that um, some of it is kind of in the training of a physician. You are trained to kind of operate at a level of autopilot. Not to say that this is for all physicians, not trying to make that blanket statement, that's my disclaimer. But when we are tired or fatigued, we all operate in an, some type of element of autopilot. And in that we don't, uh, we are quick to put people into various groups or various categories. And with, in medicine, you know, we're trained to, you know, as far as, uh, because I'm really liking this discussion that's coming up now about people looking at the association between um, kidney 
abuse and or, or kidney function rather in um, black patients or even like vitamin D and um, the, the testing for it and things like that. Um, but, but again, so again, medicine is training us to put people into various boxes. And when we operate at a level of autopilot, we see people, not necessarily as people, I've had discussions with some colleagues, and this is where my uh, philosophy degree gets me in a little bit of trouble. Um, if you recall, you know, as far as Plato in the cave, and so there was this issue about seeing the shadows. I think that when we operate in the sense of autopilot, we are just fine with seeing the shadows because we're just trying to get out of the cave to go home. Um, and with that, there has been kind of this sense of humanity that has been um, lost or derailed or postponed. And some of it has to do with, I guess, medicine and the way that we practice uh, as far as the time restraints and everything is just kind of moving and grooving along. Um, and so when someone is in front of us, um, we don't uh, get, an, we don't have opportunity to appreciate them and their, uh, their narrative, uh, their illness. And with that, we wind up with uh, some of the uh, healthcare disparities that we see today, especially that has been uh, revealed with COVID. And it's kind of interesting to be talking about all of these things. But if we think about 2020 and how we got here, it started with COVID uh, and COVID kind of revealing uh, the elements of healthcare disparity. And with the event uh, that happened with George Floyd, I don't think we were able to, we wouldn't have been able to appreciate it outside of this pause that we had to take as a collective. So I, I, you know, I, I love, I feel like you said two things. I think you've talked about professionalism and then this autopilot sense. And, I, and I'll just address professionalism really quickly. I, I, one thing that I think is so great about this initiative and the society is that we can really reevaluate what we in medicine think as professionalism. I think this initiative is so great because I think we're actively moving anti-racism up in that, in, on the same level as academic excellence or clinical, like, gestalt or what all the things that we value and just kind of saying to be a physician you have to be actively anti-racist or you have to be compassionate um and it's more than just publications and papers and i, I just that i just want to put out that plug and then i, I guess it kind of goes back to this this idea of being autopilot and i think we as physicians are you know ex taking this exceptional job and i don't understand why our autopilot you know um doesn't include being like kind or aware of racial um, issues. Th that makes sense just defining what autopilot is. I think about a surgeon and when they're on autopilot, you know, they're still thinking like, oh, I'm just going through the motions. But that doesn't mean that they're forgetting that this person has this history of hypertension and they need this medication afterwards. Um, and, and so I would challenge us to say like, when we're on autopilot, yeah, maybe we're not totally connecting with the patient, but we're also thinking they live in this neighborhood and they do this, so I'm gonna write this prescription. Um, and again, just holding us to that higher standard. And it's difficult because we have structured medicine based on essentially racist principles. And so the autopilot of medicine or the, the, the baseline professionalism excludes people. And so I guess the real question is, how do we rewrite um, 
the structure or like principles of medicine? How do we start to include empathy and, and um, racial awareness and say that this is it's unacceptable to practice without thinking about this because it's dangerous? I always love the autopilot thing too, because I think about when my pilot goes on autopilot and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure like, you know, sometimes people are driving a plane and they forget like, or they zone out or we've all driven home and forgot, but um, they're still held to like our lives. Yeah, and so I would like a certain level of um, competency when we're on autopilot. Candace is like itching to grab in, so go for it. Another big thing that ties into empathy is cultural awareness. Um, And that's not consistently taught at um, medical schools, I don't think. Um, And even um, AMSA, the American uh, Medical Student Association, had a a course on cultural awareness. I took it back in 2016, and that went away, and I'm not sure why, but it was such a great course. Um, So cultural awareness makes people more educated on things, and that encourages empathy, just kind of understanding... um, like Annie was saying, where people come from. So um, as an example, I don't know how many people out there know this, but um, Black Americans that were owned as slaves were being taught and were already practicing Western medicine as early as Mm -hmm. the late 1700s. And um, the first Black physicians to actually earn medical degrees, however, wasn't until the late 1860s, 1870s. So that's nearly 100 years later. And even then, they only had two medical schools in the entire country that they were allowed to study at, and Howard was one of them. But both of those schools were also controlled by white physicians and white administrators. So after they graduated, there were no other hospitals that would accept them for any kind of specialized training. And so their practice was restricted to only treating black patients, um, freed slaves, essentially. And it was restricted to primary care, preventative services, and prescribing antibiotics during Spanish flu. Um, In fact, it wasn't until um, 1891 that the first Black-owned and Black-operated training hospital was even established, and that was in Chicago. Uh, So right now, at this point in history, we're only at about 130 years since that even started happening. So if you think about it, the fact that we have any Black physicians that specialize in anything at all right now is pretty remarkable. Um, Mm -hmm. It really is no wonder that they are still so rare to see and find in the overall makeup of the medical world at large. Mm -hmm. And um, our very own Howard University Gold Humanism chapter advisor, Dr. Clive Callender, um, he once met and then was specifically mentored by the very first African-American transplant surgeon in the U.S. Um, That was Dr. Sam Kuntz. And then he went on to develop and run the very first minority transplant center and uh, Minority Histocompatibility Laboratory, which as we know in medicine now is crucial to have um, in the US. And so Dr. Callender, he's now in his 80s and he's still alive. So just to, like mm-hmm. think about that. He's still teaching, he's still working. Um, mm-hmm. So um, just that's background information to kind of give everybody some perspective, like how much more difficult must it be when you have only one or two others before you paving the way for how to be black in such an exceptionally demanding and high achieving and precise field of medicine. Um, How many other circumstances for trainees of color, what extra (laughs) barriers do you face when you have no other physicians in the family to help guide you through the medical school application or interview or selection process? That was me. 
<laughs> um, and instead, all you have is the one guidance counselor that maybe told you, mm, I don't know if this is really a good fit for you. And that was something I know that happened to several of my own um, Black medical school classmates. And how much more difficult is it when you come from a family that lacks the finances required to have you attend anything other than public school, um, to pay all the fees necessary to apply to every single one of the medical schools we all inevitably end up applying to, um, pay for medical school board exam question banks and books and tutors and test center bookings and Mm -hmm. to pay to travel to all these board exams and away rotations and interviews. And even down to the business suits we're expected to wear at those interviews, like who pays for those? (laughs) And so, I mean, when it comes down to it, Mm -hmm. success in medical school so often just comes down to resources Mm -hmm. in addition to just the hard work and the pure merit and even the level of passion. Um, It's much easier to study for a board exam when you're allowing yourself to eat three meals a day instead of two. And that is something I've watched some of my own classmates suffer through in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of having better cultural awareness is understanding all these added layers of burden, um, that we already put on minority students as a product of just the system that they're in, um, before they ever even arrive at their first clinical rotation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that's not to minimize the struggles of all other medical students. I myself know plenty of medical students that are not of color who are also making it through some extraordinary odds right now. Um, (laughs) But this discussion is simply just outlines the unique aspects of being both a person of color and a medical student in a profession that's predominantly white and still in some specialties predominantly male. Um, This really adds to the burden of constantly being aware that you were the only in the room. And that was something you both were talking about earlier, Um, being the only black person, the only black female, whatever that the case may be. it's a really significant thing. It takes a lot of mental energy to tune that out every single day. And it really adds to this burden of feeling like you belong, adds to imposter syndrome, um, sometimes leaves you less likely to speak up in a room dominated by others that maybe don't look like you. And it just really takes a lot of practice sometimes to shake before every single interaction. So Um, Anyone listening to this right now, I highly recommend you try (laughs) putting yourselves in one of these situations. Um, Surround yourself in a room of 10 to 20 professional women if you're male. Sustain some casual conversation in a room of 30 people of color if you're white. Um, Just focus on trying to be yourself in that environment. It it doesn't seem like it would or or should be something that would matter, but trust me, like as someone that was labeled as like a double minority um, meaning female and Latina, um, it's a very real phenomenon. It's adjustment. So, um, it, it really, it can invade every aspect of your life, including your studies, your social activities, the mentorship you seek and find just so, so many things. So education and cultural awareness. Um, if you're looking for quick little tidbits with little facts to keep you in the know every single day, We all scroll social media a lot right now. Highly recommend following the group Woke Doctors on Instagram. Um, That's been a a pleasure of mine lately, so. I feel like this conversation opens up why this initiative is so critical and, and also all of the possibilities 
for involvement. I think there are so many directions that our chapters can go in based on what what you just said. Things like mentorship or you know, surround connecting with chapters across the United States that might experience something different differently than you are. You know, um, some somebody in rural the rural United States versus you know urban America. Like I think connecting to our chapters, we have this incredible, this vast network with different perspectives. Like the conversations can be incredible, magical, like what we can learn from one another, um, you know, and, and speaking to the topic of kind of autopilot, this initiative is saying, take, take a second to start a project based on this, you know, like put, take a time out and, and here's an opportunity to, to be a leader in your community and say, let's, let's talk, let's think about this. Let's, let's put like, push the brakes, um, and, and open up this dialogue. And so, like I said, I know it's happening in many places and I really want to open up an opportunity for people to speak about what's happening. But if you just look at this 10 minutes of conversation that we just had, look, look at all the directions that we can go in to make such a critical impact. I mean, these are the next steps, you know, I'm, it's, it's, I don't know. It's incredible. Well, no, and what you're talking about as far as um, acknowledging where we are and to Candace and uh, Annie's point as far as reflection about where we have been uh, as far as the, um, the history of medicine in the U.S., um, the systemic uh, racism and the establishment and all of these things, um, I think that, you know, especially in our society, we would like to think that, oh, it was so long ago, but it wasn't. Um, or to think that, oh, it, it's just impacting this small group of people, but it's not. I mean, even if we, uh, you know, again, to use uh, the events surrounding COVID as an example, it's not, I mean, yes, Black people are being impacted by COVID at phenomenal rates. Uh, and the incidents of healthcare disparities are being highlighted within our community. But it's also connecting to everyone else. We're not the only ones, say, not receiving, say, excellent care in some instances. Um, that is enough, I think, to, you know... Uh, everyone should be receiving, say, a certain standard of care. And at this point, unfortunately, um, we are seeing that we're, everyone is not. Um, it, but it's just, it, there's so many, um, there's so many things that we can talk about or so many uh, aspects of this onion that we could kind of peel apart or uh, onion, orange, whatever, whatever requires a peel. Um, but but with this, it's just, I don't want us to get so caught up in looking at the picture or looking at the problem that we do what leads some people to go into autopilot. And that is to either just shut down and say, this is just too much, or uh, just say, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this today. Um, 
it's going to require, um, I think, as Louisa was saying, it's going to require that we um, take some initiatives uh, or do something, take action. And what that will look like will be different for every chapter. Uh, this will not be a one size fits all. What we are doing and wanting to do with more uh, as we continue this is to be the catalyst for the conversation. And that conversation is going to be, again, different at every university, within every chapter. Um, but in order for us to move forward and to address these uh, issues, especially racism, uh, in any meaningful way, it's going to require that we reflect. What's our role in this? Uh, maybe looking at our individual uh, chapters as far as the medical school. What is your medical school's connection to uh, healthcare disparities? What is your medical school's connection to racism? Um, and maybe understanding some of that, and not just purely from the academic exercise of it all, but actually going into the communities, talking to people, uh, hearing their narratives will give you maybe a better understanding of, okay, well, why, why do people avoid this hospital and go to another hospital? You know, just something, just starting there. Um, with all of this, it's just, like I said, it can be overwhelming. We want this to be a starting point for the conversation uh, or rather the reflection that your individual chapter will, uh, will take. And then for those of you who are not, say, members or associated with, uh, with GOLD, if you're a patient, you know, just, and you look online and see that there's a local chapter there, maybe, you know, like, hey, heard the podcast, it's calling for a national, you know, call to action. What are you guys doing? It'll be interesting to see if people are going to be called out on it, uh, direct those issues and concerns uh, to Louisa. <laughs> That's my attempt at a joke, but, but no, I mean, but, but we want to hear about what you are, um, what you want to do and how, uh, as far as how are you going to engage with the patients? Now, some of that will, uh, will require some reflection, uh, within looking at your institution and your institution's role, which is going to be tough. Um, what we are suggesting is not, um, it's not an easy thing. It's going to require some tough things to be said and to be heard. Uh, but hoping that, uh, chapters take on this call, um, to, uh, go further, not only just with conversation, because I think we're talked out. I mean, you know, like with the Black Lives Matter movement at the beginning, you know, getting emails from everything from food to shoes to clothing. Uh, okay, so you say that Black Lives Matter, now what? Um, and I think that as a society, we may be a little bit past the conversation and wanting to get into the action of it. But um, how can we, and this is a question I'm extending, to our guests today, uh, uh, how can, what can GOLD do to push the conversation uh, beyond um, buzzwords or do we just send out an, an email that says, you know, 
uh, the Gold Foundation understand that Black Lives Matter? Will that be enough? <laughs> no, Emails are very effective. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I can start with that. Um, one place I think we can really easily and just very simply start is um, by pushing things like some sort of implicit bias toolkit. Um, it can be a survey, it can be training, something we can offer to programs that everybody can just take and see and and learn how we really identify, how we react, how we respond in, in various situations um, and scenarios. And I think if we do this uh, with a solid foundational understanding of what exactly is at stake, which I think we did a great job of discussing here today, um, what's at stake in the profession if we don't make ourselves aware. This can, this can really be uh, like a tangible, achievable place that we can begin. Um, Another layer we can add onto that is periodic and consistent check-ins. Um, and that can be with the assistance of the advisory council. Um, it keeps the issue at the forefront of everyone's mind, keeps it fresh. Um, I once read a study that found that simply making people aware of their implicit biases, it makes them alter their behavior in the short term, but unfortunately it's not sustained over long term. And one right. reason for that might be that we're not having these conversations often enough. Maybe that's why we're having this conversation decade after decade um, without making seemingly real progress. So um, a way to counter that is just to continually make the topic pervade your routine. Um, so I think by having regular updates and check-ins with programs and their progress, we can really take this initiative um, from something that just looks great on social media to something that's really being woven into how we conduct our everyday practices in medicine. Um, and I, to add to Luisa's point, absolutely we need to highlight success stories. Um, there's some programs that are already doing a fantastic job at this and they're really feeling the effects, they're feeling motivated. Um, and I think by doing that and by showcasing that, we can really give other programs a much wider variety of ideas, contacts, resources, um, even extra incentive to help kickstart similar levels of impact elsewhere. And again, last but certainly not least, um, I think we really need to continue this fresher trend of, of really creating a culture of empowerment for um, underrepresented minorities in medicine and their future careers. Um, and with that, I also want to highlight uh, here the importance of supporting and even amplifying the role of HBCUs in, in this racism fight. Um, HBCUs have a long history of taking students with traditionally lower test scores, um, and, and they have very comparable match rates at that. So maybe that's something we need to look into. What, what are they doing that, that is so successful? Um, they take students from less stable financial backgrounds. Um, they are creating and promoting a culture of empowerment for minorities. And that leads to things like increased confidence in their abilities, more aggressively seeking out mentors and help from instructors who they, they're identifiably um, relatable. And um, even helping reverse a culture of what uh, many black students will describe as code switching. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes down to even the way they present themselves and, and how they choose to wear their hair to class every day. Like just so many things we don't normally see at other institutions. Mm -hmm. So um, with that long history of, of creating exceptional 
community service opportunities. They're also tutoring, mentoring, and shadowing um, for younger students of color in the community, and that will really help create even more inspiration and opportunities for future generations. To piggyback on your point, Candace, as a fourth-generation uh, Tuskegee graduate, I think that that is very important. Uh, and I know that Brody has taken on uh, some initiatives here in North Carolina to try to make uh, better uh headway at connecting with students at younger or earlier ages or stages in life, like even middle school. Um, but it's just, it, it takes time and it takes, uh, I guess, kind of a level of persistence um, that I think that we all need to be encouraged along the way. And I, I don't want to, I guess, discourage uh, conversations. I know, uh, any, you had something that you wanted to say, so jump on in. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I think you guys have covered a lot of things. My, my, the first thing I was going to say is, I feel, th this is the question everybody's asking. What can we do right now? How can we go past the superficial level? And I think the first answer is, right now, this is something that's been embedded and ingrained in our structure. And so just having the expectation and maybe even switching the question from right now to long term eventually. I feel like Louisa, you had said something like that in one of our last meetings. I'm getting a little bit of deja vu. But just rewording the question or our expectation of saying like what can what can we start building right now as opposed to how can we fix this right now? Um, um, but I also feel like that's kind of, you know, a little discouraging. I think for uh, the gold on a short term level, again, um, highlighting what other medical students, uh, medical schools are doing right now. And just, again, creating that culture of encouragement and saying, like, anti-racism work is worthy. Anti-racism work is wonderful. Uh, I, th I think that is not only sustainable, but accessible and easy um, to do. I think in long-term goals or just maybe mid-long-term goals is teaming up with organizations that are already answering this question. I, um, I feel like minority organizations and including like HBCU medical schools have been doing this from the start. And we're often, um, particularly in medicine, saying like, what should we do? What can we do? Instead of listening and taking um, a seat back. So some organizations that I think are wonderful are SNMA, LMSA as well. They live, breathe, and do anti-racism work. And why reinvent the wheel when these are minority individuals telling you this is what we need, this is what will work for us. Um, I am also sure there are tons of other minority organizations um, working well. And so I think partnership would be great. And supporting rather than leading uh, would be a great example. And then also, when I think of gold um, or the reputation that it has, it's a very um, like kind, loving literature, reading, poetry, and art. And so I would love anti-racism to kind of be a characteristic of that. And that's that um, means when we are present, like at the white coat ceremonies or at the Tell Me More Week, we're not just talking about the literature that we write or the stories or the patients that move us, but we're saying like, and this is how we're trying to change medicine, particularly with anti-racism. And I would also just like to encourage, if you focus on anti-racism, you will, the, your, the character change, the systematic change will seep in um, pretty much into all other practices of medicine. Anti-racism is rooted in, in such like socioeconomic barriers and such personality, cultural barriers. It, it's truly a big frontier 
um, in terms of equity in medicine. Well, in my opinion, I'm not an expert. Um, and I don't, I, yeah, I don't want to say that without actual um, evidence. I'm going back to that. So those are, that's my little piece. But I think this initiative is a wonderful start. Yeah, I love the idea of partnerships. Um, and I, I stress that always, but I just think that the, the value and the impact of that is so critical and learning about what we don't know and um, recognizing that we're not the experts. Um, I think the willingness to, to learn is, is really going to be uh, important for us as a foundation um, and, and as individuals. Um, I, and also the relationships with one another. I mean, I think when you recognize that how broad GHHS is, I mean, 30,000 members is a tremendous amount of doctors in practice, medical students, residents. If we, if we are doing a better job of coordinating with one another, um, I just think the impact will be reflected in that. And so I think if, if a school or a chapter doesn't know how to harness those connections, then connect with us, connect with your student uh, leaders. Um, we have all different opportunities to do that. Um, just to open portals for discussion because it doesn't have to start and end where you are and that might seem feel a little limiting and if we can connect then um that i just think that, that we'll see a different a different level of change uh and the other thing is it's important for the leadership at ghhs that this isn't something that's just highlighted during solidarity week this is launching now and this will last through the duration of you know so hopefully um you know may june and then we can think about how to continue our efforts you know i think it's got to be a perpetual conversation and so to your point candace of checking in and, and keeping dialogue open with one another um with with other institutions other organizations and with the gold foundation staff is really going to be critical um and then autonomy i think um i think it's really important that we've spoken about it already is that we give our chapters the opportunity to say, this is what is gonna work for us. And this is the shift that we're gonna to have to make um, and working together to embed themselves in their uh, communities and say, this is our, this is where we can help. And this is the shift that we can make. And um, and I think that that's, that's an important point too. Um, you know, as doctors in your communities, as doctors in training, to learn what your community needs are, uh, and then to be serving those as, as a group is, is really powerful. Right. And that, you know, just to even piggyback off that, Louisa, I, that will take a lot of proximity as well. Um, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, this is how to handle racism in medicine, and it's a bunch of white doctors in the room who don't live with their patients. And I, I just, I really appreciate that. I just want to emphasize, again, listening rather than doing. Yes. And the whole concept of listening rather than doing or trying to find some type of balance with it um, as far as ways that we are trying to change or improve medicine by uh, bringing in the piece of compassion. I think that a big part of that is just kind of standing where we are, um, realizing what we uh, bring to the table, but also being honest and acknowledging what we are lacking and how we can partner and build in order to really 
move or make, uh, I guess, compassion uh, a wave to handle or to address uh, some of these issues. Will it do everything perfectly? Probably not. But it's a starting point, I think, that we all um, can take or should take, rather, um, because right now everyone is kind of going through their personal issues within this and collectively the energy may be a little off Um, but as we've already highlighted there are some chapters who are trying to harness some of that energy to highlight the things that they're doing regarding anti-racism and we want again this uh, podcast to be that catalyst for maybe areas that have been thinking about it uh, but like "Mm, should we should we not this is your call or this is your way of hearing that sign. We, this is a sign. You can do something. And as an organization, we are uh, doing and going to provide uh, the help that uh, we can to help you move uh, that initiative forward. Um, I would like to thank all of our guests today for a very interesting, thrilling uh, conversation. Um, a lot of this we will follow up with probably future episodes. Um, we would love for you to, I guess, continue with us as we, you know, go on this route. But uh, that's it for our first episode of The Gold Connection. Thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe uh, so that you don't miss our next episode and to share uh, so that way we can uh, spread the word. But until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.